You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning, everyone. My name is Richard. For those who don't know who I am, and it's great to be with you and to my Every Nation family. Always good to be with you. And uh, yeah, thanks, Hart and Kezia, for that uh, little welcome. We are excited about the. We had our uh, hosted our first in home worship uh, last Sunday, and it was just such a delight to be doing this, but with other people. And so I know it's not quite the same as being in person for worship, in person for the word. That day is coming. Thank the Lord. But uh, still, I do want to encourage you, whatever and whichever way you can, to take steps to to gather in smaller groups here on a Sunday uh, throughout the week. And so we're going to be jumping into our series. Um, we're in week three. It's called Pursuing Happiness. And today we're looking happy are the meek. Now, I've been a pastor and preacher for about 20 plus years now. But every so often a topic comes up that I go, huh, I don't think I've ever preached on that. And meekness is that topic. And so I come to you um, as a student, as a learner, as someone who is no, by no means an expert in the topic of meekness, but I do uh, want to jump in today. And so part of my exploration of meekness is that you'll see in the bottom left of your screen, we still have happy or the humble. When we put this series together, we're just like, ah, oh, meekness, humble. And it's very similar to humility. But um, during this week, I said, no, I want to go back to meekness because that's what the word is used in our the, the scripture we're going to read today. And meekness is a little distinct from humility. And we're going to unpack that today. And so uh, bear with just the slides having a, uh, the, the ha happy or the humble at the bottom. So um, the problem with pursuing happiness. So we've titled this series Pursuing Happiness. And when we kicked it off a couple of weeks ago, we had a really good interaction and discussion in our small group that week because uh, some people uh, were, 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 were kind of uncomfortable to say that God is committed to my happiness. And here's why is because what do you mean by happiness? When we say pursuing happiness, when we say God is deeply committed to our happiness, what do we mean by happiness? Because happiness can mean a variety of things for different people. Happiness can often be, you know, just a very um, superficial, external uh, set of circumstances that may be happy, but it's, you know, it comes and goes as those circumstances change. And obviously, we're not talking about that kind of happiness. We're not talking about a happiness that this new shiny thing that you get gets, gets you happy. And, and new shiny things do get us happy. We see that Amazon package at the doorstep. It makes us happy. It's not quite the happiness I think God has in mind. The other thing is, are we meant to pursue happiness? Is that meant to be the goal in life? And we actually saw first off, no, it's not. Anytime we make happiness the goal, it'll always remain elusive. As Viktor Frankl said, happiness isn't to be pursued. It must ensue. In other words, happiness comes as a byproduct of pursuing other more worthy things. And so that's what we're diving into. And, and Jesus has much to say about our happiness, has much to say about how he views happiness. And happiness is often connected to his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of God is one of his favorite subjects. He taught about it most often. The parables are mostly about this kingdom. And as we dive into one of the most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with what's called the Beatitudes, just another way of saying blessings. He begins with this and he begins to outlay a kingdom manifesto, a happiness manifesto. This is what it means to be happy. And so I want to set it up 
because I think it's important for us, you know, here's just a really good Bible tip if you're new to reading the Bible, is to really try as best as you can get into the first audience. What would the, How would the first audience have heard that? Because oftentimes it can be a little different, us hearing in a 21st century culture, that was very different to a first century culture. And sometimes the meaning can get lost between those two different time zones and cultures. And so... If we immerse ourselves into that first century, we're going to hear the words of Jesus come across as quite, quite shocking, actually, quite striking. And so a couple of verses before the Sermon on the Mount, before he goes up on this mountain and begins to sit down on his followers, this is what it tells us about Jesus. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is well known. His fame is getting out. I mean, he's going viral. Like he is blowing up on TikTok, Snap, whatever it is. He is at, in the day, word is going out about this guy, Jesus. He's doing miracles. He's teaching in all these places. The religious leaders are beginning to take notice of this guy, this miracle worker. And so Jesus has an audience. Now, Jesus is ministering primarily to Jewish people. And these Jewish people find themselves in a very difficult place because they're in the land that's supposed to be theirs, the covenanted promised land that God promised them, a literal land, but it's not theirs. It's under Roman rule. And so they're there, but it's not fully theirs. And the Roman empire was one of the most dominant empires. It was a powerful empire. It was a mighty and authoritative empire. This was a world that understood power. This was a world that was ruled by Caesars and a world that understood that the powerful, the mighty, the strong inherit the land, not the meek. And so Jesus comes along and, and, and his people are languishing under this oppression. How long, God, how long are you going to uh, allow these, these evildoers to prosper? And so even in Jesus' time, there were very different pockets of um, uh, within the Jewish people, different pockets of how they thought the kingdom should come about, how God's promises were going to come about. For example, you had the Pharisees who were like, let's be faithful to the Torah and the traditions. It's because we've been unfaithful that we're in this position. You had some other groups that said, let's compromise with the Roman Empire. Let's compromise and leverage some of that power, leverage some of that authority. Then you had the, the fight and flight. You had the flight people who like, let's retreat to the desert, monastic kind of thing. And then you had the zealots who wanted to fight. Let's fight for our land. Let's take arms and literally fight for our kingdom. And so they're looking for a leader. They're looking for a Messiah to come along and realize their kingdom aspirations, but in very different ways. And so Jesus has their attention. And so now we read from Matthew 5, the beginning of he has this crowd, he has their attention. If there's any a moment where he's going to reveal his cards of, okay, I'm here, this is what it means to inherit the world, inherit the land, this is what it means to bring in the kingdom, it's now. And so from verse 3 we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So perhaps not quite the message they were anticipating or wanting to hear from Jesus. In fact, it feels like Jesus doesn't fit any of their agendas. This kingdom feels like upside down, inside out, back to front. It's not quite fitting in their framework. And so it should be. It should be that Jesus shocks us uh, because his way is very different to our ways. Um, I like this quote. Um, the Christian has a completely different outlook than the current world's spirit. The very things that men of this world aspire to are condemned by the Beatitudes. And the very things that our Lord expects us to admire, to seek, and to long for are things that the world regards as weak, foolish, and a waste of time. And so the question for you and I, kind of like the question really being posed to that original audience is, what reality are you going to buy into? Uh, what reality are you going to buy into to realize the promises of God? What reality are you going to buy into to live a happy or blessed life? The pursuit of that. And so Jesus offers us a blessed or happy life. And we see it uh, in the Beatitudes and what we're going to be unpacking over this series. And um, it's the life of true flourishing and well-being. Um, Dallas Willard uh, gives the definition of this word blessed, which is also can be translated happy, blessed, blessed, blessed. Um, and it's the highest type of well-being possible for human, flourish, human flourishing. Listen to what he says. Rather than happiness in its mundane sense, it refers to the deep inner joy of those who have long awaited salvation promised by God and who now begin to experience its fulfillment. The makarios or the blessed are the deeply or supremely happy. And so when we talk about God is committed to our happiness, we're talking about a God who's committed to human flourishing as it was in the original creation, as it will be ultimately when Jesus comes again. And we find ourselves in the tension of where God does want us to have a life that's blessed and happy, but we find ourselves within a broken system, a broken world that is um, still being renewed through the good news of what Jesus has done. And so it's the same struggle for them as it is for us. What do you mean, Jesus, the meek, inherit the earth? It seems the total opposite. And so we could have a bit of fun playing with what, how would you rewrite today's Beatitudes? You know, if you looked at the culture, what is the happy or blessed life according to the culture? And maybe we could say happy are the self-made, the self-determined, the self-defined. Happy are those who get their way. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for pleasure and progress, likes and followers and platforms. Happy are those who live their truth and pursue what makes them happy. And, and we could go on and you know, have a bit of tongue in cheek, but the reality is that's oftentimes how people pursue life today. It's, it's a pursuit and it's, it's very much inward self-centered. It's very much the self becomes the godlike figure in my life. Uh, self-expression, self-excessiveness uh, self, self and expression has, has become a dominant theme in our culture today. And no wonder we are not any happier. 
the data is in. We're not a happier society. We're not a happier world. With all the incredible advancements in technology, some things have really improved life. But we've seen that um, generally people are not happy. In fact, we have a real big challenge with anxiety and loneliness and depression and suicide is on the rise. And so that should give us pause to say maybe we're pursuing this the wrong way. Hmm, that's a good question. Maybe there is something to the way Jesus, although it's so very countercultural, and that's the challenge, right? It's it's so shocking and countercultural what Jesus says to us. We may we may say, well, that's really like wow, like a sage on the stage. Wow, that's really beautiful and poetic, Jesus. But we don't really ever align our lives to actually doing what He says, right? And I think there's a key there. Um, but Jesus invites us to pursue a radically different way. Now, before we jump into meekness, we're going to get there. I know you're holding on waiting for that. But it's really important to understand, you know, the first Christians weren't called Christians. And even when they began to be called Christians, it was kind of a negative term. How were you identified as a Christian in the, in the, first, uh, the first few years, first few decades uh, after Jesus' ascension? Well, in Acts, it says several times that they identified people, followers of Jesus, as those belonging to the way. It was called the way. It was the it was the name that they gave the sect, these, these weird people that followed this Jewish Messiah, this Jesus. And I find it fascinating it's called the way because it's about um, bringing together not just believing in Jesus, but actually becoming like him, actually living out the way that he uh, laid out for life. If you carry on in the Sermon on the Mount, there's fantastic and challenging things there. Turn your other cheek. All these kind of things. And these actually, they actually took it seriously and lived in such a way that people said, man, you're weird. You belong to the way. I recognize you belong to that way. It was kind of like that. And I wonder if today we've gone to the other extreme. It's become all about believing the right things. You know, hey, when did you pray? Did you pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart that you could have eternal life? That if you had to die today you would spend eternity with heaven. And I'm not belittling that. Obviously, Jesus does promise us that, but so much more. And it's become all about believing the right things and really less about becoming like Jesus in our actions, in our character, in our speech, in our thinking. And we see this with, with leaders who proclaim to be Christians and followers of Jesus who really acted very differently to perhaps how we would say, think Jesus definitely don't belong to the way of Jesus. They belong to another way. And so we have this weird idea that believing something can happen while my life reflects a total different reality. And that's not true belief. When we read about believing in the Bible, believing means believing in such a way that it actually is worked out in your life and that it's consistent in, in your lifestyle. If there's a gap there, there's something wrong there. There's a, there's a moment to pause and, and, and say, whoa, hang on. If I say I believe these things, but my life is lived differently or my life is lived like everyone else in my culture who doesn't believe these things, what does that say about me? What does it say about my beliefs? And so it's as simple as this. When I was young, I believed in Santa Claus. So spoiler alert, parents, if you've got little ones around, you might want to just close their ears. But <laughs> I, believe, I was committed to, to Santa Claus. So much so that on Christmas Eve, I would set out uh, something to drink for him. I would have uh, carrots for his reindeer, obviously. And I'd have some cookies because, you know, it's, it's a lot of work he's got on, on Christmas Eve. And so I gen and then in the morning, amazingly, I had a half-eaten cookie there. The, the milk was drunk and the carrots were gone. I was like, wow, 
he came, he took my stuff. Um, maybe you grew up and your parents told you, hey, don't look cross-eyed in the mirror because if you do, then it's going to stick like that. I believe that and I didn't do that. So these are silly little examples, but in childlike belief, we understand if I believe something, it's shown in my life, right? If I, if I believe in Father Christmas, I, I organize my life around that belief. That's how it should be. Um, so Paul the Apostle gives a really, I, I, it's obviously I've read this before, but I, I, I came across like, wow, did he actually say this? So this is, this is a, a sobering assessment for us. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? What he's saying is pause. If you're calling yourselves belonging to the way, if you're calling yourself a follower Jesus, a Christian, practicing Christianity, is it evidence in your life? Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. And again, I... Like, there should be an assurance. You know, oftentimes our lives don't line up, but that, and we get that. We, we're on a journey of becoming more like Jesus. But if you're not becoming more like Jesus, becoming less like Jesus, your life is not growing those fruit, it's time for us to pause. And so the Beatitudes give us this moment to really look at ourselves. And so the way of Jesus is the way of flourishing. But it must first confront us before it conforms us. The words of Jesus must first confront us and our lifestyles before they begin to take shape in us. Uh, I love what Augustine said. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe. It's yourself. So, Jesus, what do you mean happy are the meek? Happy are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And so, again, remember at the time they're under this Roman rule, Roman Roman. The Roman Empire occupies this land, and so they're questioning why, God, are your enemies prospering, and why are your people languishing? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever looked around and said, like, I'm trying to follow Jesus, I'm tithing, giving my money, I'm serving, I'm doing these things, and the people that I see at work, my neighbors, they're godless, and they're prospering, buying homes, cars, that kind of thing. It seems to make no difference. Have you ever had that? Maybe in some of those moments you've had that. I think we've all had that. God, why, this doesn't seem to work. Like, I'm serving you. I'm trying to do my best. And, you know, whereas you're, you're feeling the emotions the first audience is feeling. God, we're your chosen people, but we're oppressed for hundreds of years. When are you going to show up? When are you going to do something? I think we can all identify with that if we've been on any length of journey walking with Jesus. And so Jesus answers them shockingly. And he says, yeah, inherit the land, the meek. The meek are the inheritors of the land. Like, what? No, like, what? Did you just say that? It's because meekness doesn't seem to have a high place or value in our society, right? It's not like, I mean, even the word meekness, when was the last time you used that in a sentence or saw that as a, as a requirement on a job application? This person needs to demonstrate meekness. Um, and I think we don't see it as a value or high value in society because I think we have some misconceptions, some very quick misconceptions. Meek doesn't mean weak. Um, to be weak means you have no agency, you have no ability, you have no power. Um, and, and meekness isn't that. Um, sometimes you might have very little agency, power, ability. Sometimes you might have a lot of agency, power, and ability like Jesus. But meekness is able to restrain and harness that for good. Um, meek doesn't mean passive. 
mean, doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean I'm a doormat and I just let people walk all over me and I just turn this cheek, I turn that cheek, I turn this cheek and I turn that cheek and I let people take advantage of me. No, meekness stands up for the abuses of, of abuses and injustices that we see taking place around us. Meekness is not passivity, but it's participation with God. It's joining God in what he's doing. And then lastly, meek doesn't mean, mean timid, to be shy or to lack courage or to lack confidence or boldness. There are many other places in Scripture where we're called to be bold. We're called to be courageous. And so these are misconceptions we might have of meek. You know, I think of uh, meek and mild Jesus. Have you heard that? We're coming into Christmas season. That's wild thought right there. But those meek and mild Jesus or some of those, those early paintings of Jesus really paint him as a very weakly looking person, didn't get out in the sun much, very gauntly looking, very serious. Maybe that's our idea of meek and mild Jesus. But let me remind you that meek and mild Jesus is the ones who overturned money tables in his father's temple that displayed a righteous anger. And so I think we want to have a, a correct idea of meekness if that's what Jesus is calling us to model and emulate in our lives. So what does meekness look like for us today? And so this is where we're going to end off here and very quickly going to paint a picture. Because for Jesus' first century, and we might not have picked this up, but his first century would have picked it up immediately. The second part of that beatitude, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That they shall inherit the earth comes straight out of Psalm 37, particularly the first part of that psalm. And they would have made that connection because you'll hear it in this psalm. We're going to read it. And so if we look at this psalm, I think we get a picture of the meekness Jesus is talking about. So join me very quickly or look up on the screen. It's going to be there. It was incredibly familiar with his audience. Not so for us. So let's get familiar very quickly. This is what's called a wisdom psalm. It offers us wisdom because it addresses a very real problem. What do you do when the godless prosper? What do you do when you see people around you don't believe what you believe and they are having a good time? They are living their life. They're pursuing their life. It addresses this problem. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus knows what he's doing, and he's drawing their attention back to this psalm that they, they were a good Jewish people would have been very familiar with. And so it helps us answer the question, what are we to do when it seems like God isn't acting or working in the way I expect him or in the timeline I'm expecting him to work? I think all of us have or will go through that. And so this is good for us. And Jesus said, it's the meek. It's the meek who inherit the earth. So what does meekness look like? Very quickly from this psalm, meekness looks like trusting and delighting in God. Trusting and delighting in God. This is a deep confidence 
that God is with me, that God is for me, that God only seeks the best for me, even when that sometimes doesn't fit my framework uh, for life. Secondly, it looks like committing, committing your way to God, committing everything in your life to God, committing your relationships to God, committing your finances to God, committing your job, committing the stresses of your relationships to God, committing the hard hard aspects of parenting or being a spouse to God, committing the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of your life, committing your way to God, bringing out, unrolling your life before Him. It's a beautiful picture in the New Testament. It talks about casting your anxieties, and it's the picture of rolling off from you onto something else. This is the idea, committing. It's rolling my life onto God and say, God, help me carry this burden called life. And thirdly, it looks like waiting. Oh man, that's a hard one. Waiting patiently and quietly for God. Not trying to take things into my own hands when I so desperately want to. And sometimes we do that. We try to force God's hand or force his will. God's late. God's not acting in the way or the time frame that I want him to. Something must be up. He's forgotten. He's doing whatever it is. No, meekness looks like waiting. And it looks like waiting patiently. Why? Because I'm trusting and delighting in God. I'm committed to Him. He's committed to me. He has not forgot His promises. He has not forgot those who are His. And it's got a really great phrase there, right? Fret not yourself. You know, use that in a sentence this week. <laughs> Fretting, anxiety. I mean, here we go. It's, 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 it's not a new problem in our day and age. Anxiety grips hum, human hearts. Anxiety often grips human hearts that have lost their trust and hope in a God. And so for the people of God, we're not excluded from anxiety, but we do have a source that should be able to uh, appease our anxiety. It says, don't fret or don't be envious or don't get angry or don't take things into your own hands. When you see the godless prosper, when you see everything going on around you, the wickedness, when you see this Roman empire dominated, don't feel like God's given up on you. The meek will inherit the earth, not the ones that carry swords, not the ones that want to declare war. The meek will inherit the earth. And so meekness, maybe we could come back to what meekness is. And it has aspects of humility and gentleness in it. But here's a definition I put before you. Meekness really is an inward posture of humble submission. That's one of the words of meekness, of submission to God. That is outwardly then demonstrated through things like restraint. And gentleness, especially uh, in dealing with others. And we see this in Jesus' life and ministry, that his meekness was on display, especially as he interacted with others, especially as he interacted with others who were enemies of him, who resisted him. Um, and so that's the meekness that Jesus is talking about here. Not passivity, not timidity, not um, a weakness. You know, we, when we don't deny our strengths and abilities. Jesus didn't. Uh, you know, we just read his CV before the context. He's doing all these crazy miracles and things like that. Uh, but meekness is a quiet submission, a trust and a confidence, a delight and a commitment to God. That despite what this reality tells me, my reality is first determined by him. And I'm going to live from that place. And from that place is peace, a confidence, a joy, all the things of the kingdom in the midst of a world of anxiety, of a conflict, 
and of pursuing happiness in all the wrongs, wrong ways. And lastly, what I want to end off here is um, why meekness is so beautiful because uh, Jesus actually draws attention to how who he is as a meek person. In Matthew chapter 11, uh, it says there, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That word gentle, you guessed it, is the same word that's used for meekness. The meek will inherit the earth. And so Jesus invites you and I to follow his way. The way of Jesus is the way of meekness. Why? Because he embodies meekness. He is meekness on our behalf. That Jesus, all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus, talk about having agency, talk about having power, talk about having might and strength, and we see it restrained, and it doesn't come out lashed in judgment, but he invites you and I. You're heavy burdened. What a, the gentleness of God woos us to himself and says, come to me, all you are la heavy laden. You look around and you see this Roman Empire, you see in the 21st century, God, what's, our world is a mess, and Jesus knows it, and he says, come to me, for I am meek, gentle, and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. And so that's my invitation to you today. Don't know where you are in the spectrum. Maybe for some of you, you, you wouldn't say, I'm belonging to the way. You wouldn't be confident to call yourself a Christian. Hear Jesus' invitation directly to you today. Come to him. Come to Jesus. Come to him today. For many of you knowing and watching, you are belonging to the way. Um, but the invitation is also to you. Come to him. You know, so often we think, well, I came to Jesus way back. I prayed that prayer. It's a regular coming to Jesus. Why? Because he's gentle. He's meek. He's the one that we can come to, that we can commit to, that we can delight and trust in. And that when we have that in our hearts, we can wait patiently for God to act because we are confident God will act. And when God acts, he acts in the perfect timing, in the perfect way. And we know ultimately that's where the future is heading. And so my invitation, your invitation today is to come to Jesus, for he is gentle, meek, and lowly in heart. And he has true rest, true happiness, true flourishing for your and my soul. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.